Mr. Junior Church, and uh, eight, nine-year-olds still have clipboards up here. So our text for today will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, continuing on that, the theme of the resurrection I've been hitting on this, this month, this Easter, Easter month. Um, we've looked at the, the empty tomb on Easter Sunday. We looked at the account of the disciples, and the road to Emmaus, and we looked last week at how Christ pointed them to the scriptures as their, as pointing to the resurrection, not just seeing him as evidence, but as scripture fulfilled. And this week we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, pointing to the hope that we have in the resurrection. What is what is the meaning behind this? What, not only is Christ raised, but what does it mean that Christ is raised? What are the implications? So we'll begin with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to share from your word the truths contained there uh, about Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Um, just thank you for this opportunity to to focus on the resurrection this month, what that means, what you have done for us, what Christ has accomplished for us. Uh, help us as we study your word to, to glean from it, to gain understanding, for it to affect our hearts and minds, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Be looking specifically at verses 1 through 20 there. We'll go ahead and read those. <clears throat> now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found 
to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So in the adult Sunday school class, we've been studying 1 Corinthians. So you know, a decent portion of people here have a background of 1 Corinthians, have an understanding of everything that's led up. I think we're in chapter, where are we at? 12, 11? We just finished 11. We're starting 12. So we're, we're getting close to chapter 15. By the time we get to 15, most of them will have probably forgotten what I've taught. So this will be new information for them again. Um, but for those who aren't in that Sunday school class, 1 Corinthians is a letter from Paul to the church in Corinth. But some things about Corinth that might help you gather some understanding of what he's writing here. So Paul goes to Corinth, he begins his ministry in the synagogue. This is all recorded in Acts 18. <coughs> in his typical method, he goes to the synagogue first. He goes to the Jewish people first. And with the help of Aquila and Priscilla, he's there, names you possibly recognize. But it's, he's eventually opposed and reviled by the Jewish believers. So he takes the gospel to the Gentiles. So you end up with a church in Corinth that he's writing to consist of many people who were former pagans. They would be Gentiles. And there are Jewish believers in that church as well. So there's a, there's a mixture of people in this church, and there's a mixture of danger of mixing former beliefs with truths that Paul has taught them. And so this letter that Paul's written to the Corinthians is addressing some issues within that body of believers, things there serious things that are going on that need correction. So in this section, chapter 15, he's addressing a proper understanding of the resurrection. So beginning in verse 1 there, it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand. So throughout this letter to the Corinthians, he's been addressing lots of different sin issues, doctrinal issues within that church. And at one point, he even said, you know, they were having issues where some people were saying, you know, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, who would be Peter, and some, I follow Barnabas, I follow Jesus, right? And at that point, he says, I laid a foundation, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. And he's pointing them back to this here. Right? It doesn't matter You're not to follow one particular leader. You are to follow Jesus Christ. But he's pointing back to that, that foundation. The gospel he preached to them. But this, the resurrection portion of the gospel is becoming a, an, an area of issue in this church. And the thing about the resurrection, it's a primary issue. If you don't understand the resurrection correctly, you don't understand the gospel correctly. And if you don't understand the gospel correctly, you are not a believer. 
you do not you are not a Christian. You know, there are many different things we can have disagreements on within the church. Um, today we talked about communion in 1 Corinthians. There are different believers observe communion in different ways. Does not necessarily mean you are not a believer if you don't do communion the exact same way that we do it here. It's, it's a thing we can have disagreement on. You can have disagreements on baptism, right? Our, our name, we are Baptists. That is one of the things that defines us in the way we act. And we think that that is the right way to do it. But we also acknowledge that there are other believers who, who might do that a different way. We think that they are not right in the way they do it, but we, they are believers. There's different views on the end times as well. Not all agree on the same thing. We can still call them brothers. But when it comes down to the resurrection, that is a set thing. There is no, no way around it. It's a key element of the gospel. And so understanding, believing in the gospel rightly is the difference between being a Christian and not being a Christian, and the resurrection is a key element of the gospel. But he's writing here in this first, in this opening verse, he's going to remind them of the gospel he preached to them, he said, which they received. They were there, they received it. And he goes on and says, they're standing in it. So he doesn't believe them to not be believers. Here he's calling them believers. And, and I was thinking about like when it says, in which you stand, it's not, you're not backing down. It's, it's easy to read over little phrases and just say, okay, in which you stand, next. Right? They're not backing down from it. They're known for it. It's something that they are possibly willing to die for. It defines them. They are standing for the gospel. <clears throat> but he goes on and he says, and by which you are being saved. And you noticed that there's an active term in there, that they are being saved by the gospel. Right? So when you think about salvation, it is a seemingly twofold operation. It is not a simple, you receive Christ, and that's the end of it. You go back on with your life, right? There, we, Christ is received. You stand before God, then justified, right? You, you have Christ's righteousness at the receiving of Christ. And yet you, then you have this act of sanctification, this ongoing becoming more and more Christ-like. That is this act of being saved, the ongoing becoming more and more like Christ, which is never finished. Right? You can never stand up and say, I'm there. I have become completely like Christ. I am done being saved. Don't need to save me anymore, God. I'm good. Right? At any point, you can enter into God's presence, but you are always becoming more and more like Christ. But he affirms this. He, he, he is affirming that they are believers. But he says, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. <coughs> so don't change the gospel that was preached to you. right? Hold fast to it. It is not something that can be changed. Continue on in it. He says, unless you believed in vain. 
there are a couple things going on here. Um, we believe that true believers will persist until the end, right? That you cannot lose your salvation. And once you are saved, you are always saved. And then there's this aspect then, unless you believed in vain, right? So if you, and he, and he gets into that later on. That's what his whole thing here is about. So if you believe that the resurrection is not true, then you are believing in a vain thing. It does not exist. It is not true. The Savior you believe in does not have power. Um, but that points us into the next scripture there, the next section, which begins in verse 12. But specifically, <laughs> verse 13 and 14, I wanted to just read in reference to that believing in vain. Because 13 and 14 say, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So he's, again, he's talking to them about <coughs> the truth of the resurrection. And he goes on later and says, If the resurrection isn't true, this is all in vain. It's all pointless. But he goes through and he he points out like it is true. It is not in vain. So if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not raised, and the gospel would be a lie, and Christians would be without hope, right? And that's what he's pointing towards, if there is no resurrection of the dead. The primary issue, if it's not true, there is no gospel. There is no good news. Use the word gospel constantly. It's one of those Christianese terms we assume everybody knows what it means, but it means good news, right? What is the good news? And that's what he gets into in the next verses in, in verse 3 and 4, where he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, <coughs> that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, right? That is the good news. And, he's, and it says he delivered it to you as of first importance. So when he came, this is what he, what he came and taught. He didn't come and teach them on begin with the doctrine of communion. He didn't come and begin with how to treat your husbands and wives rightly. He came and taught the good news first, the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised. First importance, it is the most important thing. That's why it's called the good news. It's interesting, you always, sometimes you, if you don't fully grasp, you say, well, why did Christ have to die? Why did the crucifixion have to be so gruesome, right? And think back to the Old Testament and the sacrificial system and what was going on there in Leviticus 17, <laughs> verse 11, points towards that, the sacrifices that the priest made. But <laughs> Leviticus 17, 11 says, 
For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So it was in the blood and that, that sacrificial giving and the, the blood that was shed is where the forgiveness was done. It's where the atonement was made. And that is why Christ's blood had to be shed. And they even had, and that was a section that was in reference to eating blood, which would have been a common pagan practice. But he was giving the explanation for why you don't eat blood. Well, you don't eat blood because blood is how the atonement for sin is made. You don't take something that is so serious. You don't take it lightly. In Hebrews 9.22, a New Testament passage, it talks about, that's a passage that you'll, probably be familiar with if you don't recognize it just from the reference. <clears throat> but then it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That was part of the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Right? In order for Christ to be the perfect lamb, to be the perfect sacrifice for sins, his blood had to be shed. That was, that was what God had instituted. But he preaches that. He preaches that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That accordance with the scriptures should sound familiar, right? That's why I talked about last week. We, we looked at the men on the road to Emmaus and how Jesus came to them, and he didn't, he hid his appearance, right? He came to them, and he, and he explained to them from the scriptures everything that had to happen that had happened. And then he showed they recognized him. It was the scriptures, which is what Paul is saying here. Because you see, if you continue on, he gets into, well, according to the scriptures, all these things had to happen, and here's all the people who saw Christ raised from the dead, right? Not only do you have the scriptures that tell us this had to happen, we now, here's the proof. <coughs> but I want to talk more in verse 4 where it talks about that he was buried. Right, we talked about it was necessary for the blood to be shed for the atonement. But then it talks about that he was buried. We often talk about him dying. We talk about him being raised. The buried part is not always included as much. But I was thinking about that and, and thinking, what is burial? Right? We, we go to Christian funerals, and what is the burial? The burial is the confirmation of the death. It's sort of this final event for that person. Right? If you've ever been to a funeral service for a loved one, you know there's like there's a different feeling when that casket is closed for the last time and it's lowered into the ground. It's that there's a finality to it. It's this confirmation of death. Jesus' burial was confirmation of his death. If you look into the, the Muslim religion some, you'll find they say Jesus swooned. He was not really dead. He was almost dead. We don't believe he was almost dead. We believe he was fully dead. He was completely dead. You don't place somebody who's almost dead into a tomb for three days and they get out 
and walk away three days later. It doesn't work like that. Our bodies don't heal like that. He was fully dead. And there was one commentator as I was studying this who sort of, he put a nice aspect on it, but he said, his burial is more closely connected with his resurrection than his death. So on one hand, you have burial is confirmation of death, right? You bury dead people. It is the final thing. But he's saying it's more closely connected with resurrection than with death. It says the grave was to him not the destined receptacle of corruption. He wasn't placed in the tomb in order to rot. It says, but an apartment fitted for entering into life. He was put in the tomb in order to rise again. He wasn't put in the tomb for decomposition to happen. That's what happens whenever we place someone into the ground. Their body decomposes. The natural processes continue taking place. When Christ was buried, he was buried to be raised again, to be resurrected. It was just another step along the way. There was a a popular song on the last few years, but one of the things it said that kept coming into my mind with this was, I was thinking, so on Friday, they placed Christ into the tomb, and the sadness would have been immense, right? But Sunday's coming. And that's, that's the song I was thinking of. They kept saying, but Sunday's coming, right? He's going into the tomb. The resurrection is a sure thing. Sunday is coming, right? He is going to rise again. So in the case of the Messiah, the tomb points to the resurrection. It's confirmation, yes, he was dead, but it's also just another step along the way to the resurrection of Christ. And he says that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures in verse 4. I keep, the one thing you're going to notice, I keep coming back to this particular verse and I mentioned it some last week, but Psalm 16, verse 10, the verse that just keeps coming up as I study the resurrection. And <coughs> this was in Peter's sermon that he preached at Pentecost, he referenced this. But Psalm 16, verse 10 says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. The fact that Christ rose again from the dead is that confirmation that he is the Holy One, where it says, or let your Holy One see corruption, right? That's what Peter was saying on Pentecost. Pentecost. This psalm was written about David, but we know David is still in the ground. Christ is not in the ground. The bones are not there. So, continuing on, make a note before, we, before you start getting into verses 5 and on. I'm not going to go into depth on these eyewitness accounts, but I just want to point you back to, remember last week where we talked about in accordance with the Scriptures. He talks about that first before he gives these eyewitness accounts. But in verse 5, he, he talks about he appeared to Cephas in I mean, it was not that long ago when I finally sat down and said, okay, why don't I know who Cephas is? Like, why? <laughs> it's Peter. It's his other name for Peter. Rock. But then he appears to the 12, which we, we talked about some. Would be, if you continued on in Luke where we were studying, 
the next account in Luke from where we left off last Sunday is Jesus comes into the midst of the disciples, the 11, it says. But then even more so here in verse 6, it says, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, right? <coughs> if you want to try to deny the resurrection as like some sort of mass delusion, right? The 11 the apostles all just are experiencing the same delusion. Well, how do you explain the over 500 people who all saw him as well? Were they all hallucinating as well, right? And he even goes on, Paul says here to these Corinthian believers, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep in regards to those 500. So if you're in the Corinthian church, you receive this letter, you could go track down some of those 500. Go back to Jerusalem. There's probably some there. It was shortly after Passover. It could be people from all over the place. There may be somebody in Corinth you could go find who was part of that 500. You could go, when this letter was written, you could go find somebody who had seen Christ risen after crucifixion. Right? Proof is there. Then he goes on and explains more about himself. I'm going to jump down to verse 12, more into what does the resurrection mean. Verse 12 says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Right? It doesn't make sense. If Christ is raised from the dead, how can you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And we don't know exactly what was happening here, but the, I, I, I think the idea was you had this mixture in, in paganism of like the body is a bad thing. It, it, your, your ultimate goal is to be freed from your body. So this Christian idea that your body is going to be raised again, why would you raise a bad thing back up, right? And so they're mixing that in with, with their Christianity. And they're saying, well, we don't believe in the resurrection. It wouldn't make sense to raise a bad thing. Well, if you, and he's getting down to it. He's saying, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, right? You can't just have one thing. Let's be consistent here. But it's, it's interesting because it seems that they're claiming there's no resurrection of the dead, while at the same time they claim the resurrection of Jesus to be true. They're having a hard time remaining consistent because he still referred to them as, as believers in that opening section of chapter 15. They're just not being consistent. <clears throat> but in verse 13, he, sort of, he drills down on it and he says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Right? You can't have one without the other. Paul's saying the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Christ has to be raised from the dead. If Christ is raised from the dead, there is a resurrection of the dead. And vice versa. And in verse 14... And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He follows it out to its logical conclusion. It's good sometimes when you're having a discussion with somebody and what they're saying doesn't really make sense. If you just push, 
push the antithesis, right? You have a bad point, we're going to push it all the way. Let's, let's go. Let's see where this lands you if you take that all the way to its logical conclusion, right? Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, right? If Christ's bones are still on the ground, why do you believe in him, right? Why is, why is Paul traveling all over the world preaching the gospel, right? Why are the other apostles, why are other believers all over the world preaching the gospel, right? Why is it being spread so much if it's not true? It would be in vain if Christ was in the ground still. Christian faith would be pointless if Christ was still in a tomb somewhere. <laughs> and he continues on in verses you know, 15 and 16 and just continues that we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God, that he raised Christ. We would be blaspheming God. We said that he raised Christ, right? If he didn't raise him, we are liars, and we are making God out to be a liar as well. He said, Who, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So if the resurrection is not true, then God did not raise Christ from the dead, and we are liars. We made God out to be a liar. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Again, he's, he's just making that logical conclusion of the two arguments. They go hand in hand. You can't have the resurrection of Christ without the resurrection of the dead. But he caps it there in verse 17, says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. All right? So the Christian faith is the way to become right with God. That gospel that he talked about, Christ died for sins. <laughs> he was buried, he was raised. Oh. Romans 4.25 tells us about the resurrection of Christ. It says that Christ was raised for our justification. The Resurrection was confirmation that the Father accepted the death of Jesus as payment for sins. So if Christ is not raised, then the Father did not accept the death of Christ as payment for sins. Right? This is an important thing, the doctrine of the resurrection. And again, back to that passage in Psalm 16, verse 10, where he will not let his Holy One see decay. Right? If Christ bones are in the ground, if he decomposed as any other man, he was not the Holy One. Again, that's referenced again in Acts chapter 2, verse 24, with Peter's sermon at Pentecost. <laughs> in verse 18, he says, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Right? If, you are, if the resurrection is not true, if Christ is not really a Savior, and you have died believing in Christ, you are truly dead. There is no resurrection for you, right? You have perished. And verse 19 there, he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So if your hope in Christ is only for this lifetime, how sad is that? Because how many other religions 
have something beyond this lifetime. But he doesn't leave you there. He doesn't just say, set up all these scenarios that if the resurrection is not true, then here are the consequences. But in verse 20, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, right? We have this confirmation, which he pointed to back in verse 4, and then gave the, not only do the scriptures attest to it, but we have those who saw him, that you can go ask, that he is raised. He has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Because Christ is raised from the dead, we can be sure that there is a resurrection to come. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, there is forgiveness of sins. You can have hope in this life, as, as he said, but it's not only this life. You have hope for after death because of Christ, because of the resurrection, because of what he has done. So what do we take away from this today? There were, there were two things I wanted to focus on. Obviously, the resurrection is one of them. The other thing was, I was thinking back, verse 3 there, where he gives like this quick summary of the gospel. <coughs> For I delivered to you as of first importance, right? It was the most important thing Paul brought when he came to a new city, was the gospel. So what is the gospel, right? What did Paul deliver to the Corinthians as first importance? That Jesus lived a perfect life, that he died as a perfect sacrifice for sins. He was buried in the Father, resurrected him because he was the perfect sacrifice, right? He turned to him in faith because of that, for the forgiveness of sins. And I was thinking more on that and was thinking, so yes, this First simple question is, do you believe that to be true? Is it true? Yes or no? But then, so if you do believe it to be true, can you articulate it well? It's one of the things we've had different classes, and, and something I'll do just, we interview people for membership classes, or talk to somebody who introduces themselves as a believer and say, what is the gospel? Tell me what is the gospel, right? So somebody asks you what is the gospel, can you explain it to them? Can you articulate it? And one of the like, simple ways to think is like, well, I'll just send them to the deacons or the pastor. Well, our pastor is currently retired. We are without a pastor. And what if you're in a situation where you can't send somebody to the deacons, right? You, Somebody on the street is dying and they say, I, I know there's... I want to be made right with God. I know that there's more to this, like, but, I, but I know I'm not. Can you help me? You say, well, let me go get my deacon. I'm like, well, he's, he's not going to live, right? Can you articulate the gospel? If you can't, you need to work on that. It is a primary importance. Because many professing Christians cannot give an accurate, basic definition of the gospel. They, they would have a hard time sharing it with somebody, and that should be convicting to us. 
But beyond that, the main thing I wanted to, to draw from this is, is the resurrection, right? The resurrection is the Father's confirmation that Jesus' death on the cross was the acceptable sacrifice for sins. Not just a acceptable sacrifice, but the acceptable sacrifice for sins. Again, pointing back to Psalm 16, verse 10. The Holy One would not see decay. Christ was the Holy One. It was confirmed in his resurrection. And because of Jesus' resurrection, we have hope. We have hope for the forgiveness of sins. You can be made right with a holy God. You do not have that ability on your own. It is only through Jesus Christ you can do that. We also have hope that there is a resurrection of the dead still to come. Our hope is not just in this lifetime. It goes beyond. You have hope in this life and you have hope after death because of the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this opportunity to share from it. I thank you most of all for Christ. Thank you for raising him up for that acceptable sacrifice of sins that we can be made right with you, Lord. We can enter into your presence. <coughs> Help us to have a heart to share that with people, to know it well enough to be able to present it, um, to have a heart for others to share that with them. In Jesus' name, amen. The song near the cross sounds like I took a step backwards from the resurrection. I'm going to sing about being near the cross, but near the cross reminds us of some things. This is where Christ died for our sins, but he's not on the cross anymore. It's where he's taken away from and buried, but he's not in the tomb anymore. He's resurrected as we go to stand near the cross, as we think of the cross it's a reminder to us of what he's done for us. Can you imagine the relief had you been there the moment you realized that he truly rose from the dead? The moment he walked into your presence, the amazing relief, and that's our relief. Christ died for us, but he didn't stay dead. He was a sacrifice, and he rose from the dead to make sure that we knew we were guaranteed life with him, not just here, but forever. So even as we sing this, it's a reminder of what Christ has done, of the payment was made, but he isn't there anymore. It just reminds us. So let's stand and sing near the cross. <clears throat> Jesus, keep me near the cross, there a precious fountain, free to all a healing stream, flows from Calvary's mountain. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever, till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. Near the cross a trembling soul, love and mercy found me, 
There the bright and morning star Sheds its beams around me In the cross, in the cross Be my glory ever Till my raptured soul shall find Rest beyond the river Near the cross, O Lamb of God Bring its scenes before me Help me walk from day to day With its shadows o'er me In the cross, in the cross Be my glory ever Till my raptured soul shall find Rest beyond the river. Near the cross I'll watch and wait, Hoping, trusting ever, Till I reach the golden strand, Just beyond the river. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever, till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the message today from your word, the reminder that if Christ had not risen from the dead, we'd be all most pitiful because we would have no real faith. We would be just like all everyone else. Their faith would be in vain. But Lord, he rose from the dead. The cross is empty. The grave is empty. We're thankful that we know that Christ is going to raise us up to be with him. And we look forward to that day. Help us to know the truth of your word, to know how to spread your word, because our purpose is to spread the gospel that others might know you, that in that way we might bring glory to you. So help us as we go to be ready and willing to spread the gospel, to tell others about your son Jesus Christ, and the grave is empty. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. You are dismissed.